five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. What a fool believes. We are still sailing the seas of yacht. At least for the time being. Because we will be going in the not so distant future on a uh, full-fledged yacht journey. It's coming. And it's coming. Which might be the uh, peak of our little uh, tour in the world of uh, yacht rock. And we're getting down to the classics now. A little uh, What a Fool Believes. Steel, uh, Steely Dan. The Doobie Brothers. Two guys from Steely Dan. You have uh, Jeff Baxter and uh, Michael McDonald. Uh, on guitar, uh, Jeff Baxter on guitar, Michael McDonald on the keys. Right. It's rare when you see a band recreate themselves like that. Usually when they lose a key member, it's not always like they try to replace the person with a person that could do the same thing that that person could do. And sometimes it works. You're like Steve Morris has been a, a pretty solid standard for Richie Blackmore for many years with Deep Purple. And there are a ton of Richie Blackmore fans. And Steve, I think Steve Morris has been with Deep Purple longer now than Richie Blackmore ever was. So you can do that. You can find a suitable replacement. And then the, you know, the band kind of keeps on going, right? But sometimes it doesn't work. Sometimes you, you bring a guy in. Like for me, I, th- I actually thought the Rolling Stones got worse when Ronnie Wood joined the band. They had a couple of good albums, you know. I thought uh, Emotional Rescue, the, the, the Some Girls, Some Girls, and then finally, like, maybe Tattoo You. I think those were the sort of the last wave of the best Stones records. And Ronnie Wood plays a bit too much like Keith Richards for me. And they love each other. They drink and, you know, carouse and all that shit, right? He's a perfect Stone in that kind of way. But Mick Taylor was a different kind of guitarist altogether. He could do these jazz riffs. I mean, he he had a very different style than uh, than uh, uh, Ronnie Wood, and a different style than Brian Jones. Brian Jones was a very talented multi instrumentalist. So the Stones kept going, but ultimately, I think they were a better band with uh, Mick Taylor. You know, bands will lose members. Like The Clash lost Mick Jones, and they became a shittier band. 
because of it, these things happen. One could even make a case that when the who lost uh, Keith Moon, you know, Kenny Jones, a fine drummer, don't get me wrong. They made a, you know, some decent records, but I think the one band that probably lost a key member and still kind of kept going in that direction and Pink Floyd, because Pink Floyd lost Roger Waters and they still managed to maintain some of their Floydiness, although I'm not a huge Pink Floyd fan. Um, there was somebody else who, who was it that actually was able to, oh, Genesis. Genesis loses Peter Gabriel, but they become a different band. They didn't say, hey, let's replace Peter Gabriel with another Peter Gabriel-like character. Phil Collins does the vocal standings because his voice is kind of similar in places to Peter Gabriel, but then they just become a different band. Um, and then they bring in, I think, Chester Thompson, uh, who uh, frees up Phil Collins to do other things. And they just become a different band. And that's what happened with the Doobie Brothers. Uh, Tom Johnston, he, I think he got hurt. Plus he was like dealing with, you know, fatigue, road fatigue, probably, you know, all these guys have some dependence on drugs to keep them going. So he winds up taking a hiatus from the band and they say, okay, well, let's bring in Michael McDonald and Jeff Baxter, both of whom had been playing around with Steely Dan and other people in the LA music scene. They become a different band. And, you know, they become the, one of the anchors of, of, of the yacht one of the propellers of the yacht, one of the main sails of the yacht, whatever metaphor you want to use. Uh, so it's rare when that happens. I guess maybe the closest approximation would be Genesis because they became a different band after Peter Gabriel. But then Tom Johnston eventually comes back to the Doobie Brothers. And I, I, I saw the Doobie Brothers in a kind of an odd way. And it was, um, I went to this, music convention in Boulder it was around 2011. And it was for all these uh, FM radio stations that, that did, you know, kind of adult alternative contemporary AAC. And I was there because I was trying to get uh, this young guy, very talented guy, uh, Ari Oakland, who I used to play on my show a lot, did a great record. Um, and so we went there and we, we knew somebody who had a, I knew somebody at a radio station uh, in Taos. And he said, yeah, why don't you come, come, come out? And he did his best to introduce us to some people. Like we met Jack Johnson's A&R person uh, from Warner Brothers. We saw Jack Johnson, a little, little brunchy kind of Jack Johnson Sunday morning performance. It was pretty cool. The Doobie Brothers played to, I don't know, maybe what about 60 people. And it was really um, Pat and Tom and I think Jeff Baxter on guitar. I think it was mostly acoustic. It was really good. But that's, a, that's the closest that I ever came to seeing the Doobie Brothers, even though they're from the Bay Area, which is where I'm from. And uh, I think they're actually from San Jose, if I'm not mistaken. 
All right, let's get into today's show. Enough with our slightly obscure musical reference points for the day. Uh, we're going to be talking about Hoover Dam and a few other things that are associated with Hoover Dam, kind of the esoteric component here. And I, I stumbled upon a movie um, called San Andreas, which I'm going to play it. Uh, a couple of clips from and one of the clips shows the explosion of the Hoover Dam. So there's a term for that. It's called predictive programming, but there's more going on to the movie San Andreas than meets the eye. The star of San Andreas is Dwayne, the rock Johnson, whom I believe at some point will become president of the United States. And you may think it's crazy. I'm not the only one though. And he's being set up and promoted with his, um, with his brand. My, my, I'm changing colors here. Look at that. I'm like kind of like light green looking like I'm sick. Oh, now here comes the color back in my face. That's really weird. Anyway, we're going to get into San Andreas and a lot of other related material here with the Hoover Dam. Uh, behind me, you can see what's called the, the Winged Guardians or the Winged Angels. And it's part of a very interesting decode right there at the top of the uh, Hoover Dam. Over here, you can actually see another carving, which I'm going to bring up as well. Um, it doesn't have the same sort of significance, but there is some interesting symbolism with that. A lot of people died during the creation of the Hoover Dam. Quite a few. And this little bas-relief back here is a monument to, uh, or a testament monument to the people who actually died creating the dam. So it's, it's almost like a, a gravestone marker in some ways. And we're going to get into some of the symbolism here. It's, it's, I think it's interesting and definitely on the table. All right, let's, uh, let's take care of a little business. Uh, how's our, uh, how's our girl Lisa doing? Did she uh, get on to the next round? Let's see. How's she doing? Currently second. Oh, come on. We got 12 hours. We got 12 hours. She's second in her group. People, let's make a bit of a push here. We got to get her out of the first round. So I can talk about her for the next three months. Let's go. Here we go. Currently second. Come on. We got to vote. got to make that vote happen. 12 hours. You get a free daily vote. And I guess you can also throw down with a uh, little cash on the uh, cash vote side, which gets you like 10 votes. I mean, this is a uh, uh, also 
the money goes to a nonprofit suicide prevention. You want a tax write-off. There it is. You can get a tax write-off. You can donate some cash, suicide prevention, and then um, get our girl Lisa a few votes. Come on, we got We got to get her out of the first round. At the very least, out of the first round. I'll be voting for you today, Lisa. Welcome to the show. If you're listening on the podcast side of things, uh, getting excited on the podcast side. We have really taken off on the iTunes player. The, the iTunes player is now the, uh, look, look, you can always come out here. You can always come out here. You're welcome to come out here. Yep. Yeah, the iTunes player has really taken off, which is pretty cool. And I'll tell you who else has really taken off is England. England has moved up and above Canada. Actually, today, they were actually tied for listens. I love that shit. Okay, I like looking at the stats. Let's talk a little uh, True Ham Science before we jump into Chataria. Of course, True Ham Science helped me get to sleep last night. Had myself a little gummy before bed. Perfecto. And uh, as I've mentioned before, you can get a number of other products at truehemscience.com. Uh, if you are a fan of fulvic acid and fulvic acid helps you replenish, especially during this hot weather. If you're outside, you're going to dehydrate. You're going to, you're going to demineralize fulvic acid will help you remineralize your body. Add those essential minerals. So you can get that fulvic acid also from uh, true hemp science. Um, if you spend a hundred dollars or more, of course you'll get your, your booty, not your not your twerking booty, but booty like pirate booty. You get your $20 around there. Sometimes Chris will throw in more depending upon what he has. If you get your order, $100 and above. And um, all you got to do is go to truehemscience.com backslash ref backslash 23. And then you're, you're in. And when you check out 15 mins, one five mins, that's your code. Chris knows you're coming from here, which means you get the good stuff. All right. Let's talk about Chataria. Let's have a little meet and greet, a little coffee clutch with Chataria. Let's see who's here today. You're welcome to come in. He knows he wants to come in. The guy sitting and playing guitar looks like he's really chill. Jeff Baxter didn't have a care in the fucking world. He's really smart, by the way. Nice to see you, Michael. There's my man, Tom. What's going on, TJ? Fran is here. Miss CC Jones. Sony. Hey, look who's here. Elizabeth Vanell. Good to see you, Elizabeth. I've always loved this song. You know what I found out? I found out that chicks dig Yacht Rock. Chicks dig Yacht Rock. 
Every woman I've spoken to loves Yacht Rock. So I think there's a couple of reasons why. Number one, the songs are kind of romantic. Number two, it's who brought this up? I think it was the Doomer Boomer. Um, she said, it's also kind of cucky. Like the men are kind of cucks. <laughs> because they're given up on a woman that they shouldn't have given up on or and invariably they're a fool right so it's like yacht rock has a lot of broken hearts there are, there are broken hearts strewn across the seas of, of yacht but there's also the getaway right there's also the getaway factor and everybody loves the getaway let's take you know calgon take me away like let's get out of this place Let's let's go to a you know a place where we can have a pina colada and uh, don't do yoga, right? Stuff like that. That's another component. So there's a romantic element. I think it's the romantic element of yacht rock that you know chicks dig it. It's the way it is. Bring your boat shoes, absolutely. Neo wise. Oh, by the way, I was corrected. I am not the chief. However. In Bot Z, it is my main uh, deity or like the, the ruler of my Bot Z chart is the chief. So I'm actually a human who has the access to the chief, or the chief has the access to me, however you want to do it. I'm still rolling with the chief. Uh, whatever you do, don't take three hour yacht cruise on the SS Minnow. I know, right? There was this band called Little Roger and the Goosebumps, and they were in San Francisco, and they did this song. It was so fucking clever. They did a cover of Stairway to Heaven using the lyrics to Gilligan's Island. It was really clever. Maybe I'll play that one day. Kelly B is here. What's going on, Kelly? Good to see you. The Lady Virgo is in the house. What's going on, Lady Virgo? Mick is pro-vax. Fuck him. Uh, you know, yeah, all these guys are. Uh, speaking of pro-vax, Christopher Cross, who is definitely on the yacht crew, right? Even though I didn't like him growing up very much. Christopher Cross is vaccinated. And guess what? He had to stop his tour because he got sick. Another little known fact about Christopher Cross is that Steely Dan actually asked him to play guitar on one of their records. Apparently, he's that good. Metallica lost a member early on. Yes, they did. Sea Pines, what's happening? Yes, the Nightfly, Donald Fagan, is definitely Yacht Rock. It is probably the last great Steely Dan record. Uh, we were looking at that this morning, and the number of musicians on that record is crazy. The one person who's ostensibly missing is Walter uh, Walter Becker, but he was replaced by the Brecker brothers. So Walter Becker, not on the record, but the Brecker brothers are. Uh, yes, Nightfly, definitely in the odd zone. Traffic with Steve Winwood and Dave Mason. I, I like them. I wouldn't consider them yacht though. I, I would I, I love that that period of traffic like 
Low Spark of High Heel Boys. I love that tune. It's a little too meandering, a little too stony, um, but it's a good, it's a, I, it's a great version of Traffic. I love that, that sound on the road. It's cool shit. They were, tra Traffic were like the European version of the Grateful Dead, but better. Because they were kind of this, they were kind of an early version of a jam band. Like if you listen to Low Spark of High Heel Boys live, you'll hear some of that jammy element. I think there are probably some Dave Mason tunes that would qualify as Yacht Rock. Um, let's see who else we have. Fran saw the Doobie Brothers way back in the day, probably when they were really, really good. Uh, Tom saw Dave Mason. You saw traffic once with Mason one time ago. I saw Steve Winwood back in what was that, 1986. That was a great show, by the way. Level 42 opened. And there are some people who think that some level 42 songs are actually yacht. Jack Johnson is yacht. You know, Tom, you might have a point there. You might have a point there. Jack Johnson might be yacht. South City Midnight Lady, Hucklebuck 411. That's a great song. I used to listen to those, Doobie Brother. My, so we had a car. We had a Cadillac. I thought it was the coolest shit, that Cadillac. Because number one, it had an air conditioner. It was the first car that we ever had with an air conditioner. And I loved it. It had big, plush, red leather seats. I loved it. It was white. And it had an eight-track quadraphonic sound system that my father put in. So we would listen to eight-tracks in there. And my father was really into uh, switched-on Bach, and he went through this Arthur Fiedler and the Boston Pops phase, which I actually kind of liked. Uh, and then I would sneak my eight-tracks in, which he, he didn't really like so much. And um, I think my, my two... I listened to the captain and me over and over and over again uh, in that Cadillac many, many, many times. Mark M's in the house. What's going on, Mark? Will the rock raise his eyebrow at the end of inauguration speech? Uh, Michael, if there were odds on that, you, you'd have to pay $5 to get a dollar back. I think that's where the odds would be. Good call. I hope Texas has enough sense not to elect Beto. Big Soros money behind Beto. That's coming out. Fucking Beto. He's gonna make he's gonna make me vote for Abbott, which I don't really want to do. And I know a lot of people think it's a bunch of bullshit, but Ted Cruz beat Beto by one percent when they ran against each other. And I did not vote for decades. I actually voted for Teddy Cruz. So I'd like to think that my vote went towards that 1%. Uh, Fran, you're all over it. Soros pouring money into his race. Soros is a front man, always has been. Uh, what's going on, my man, Steve? Good to see you, brother. Uh, Sony says, same type of mystery. D different mystery but very mysterious. 
like we actually have there's actual photos of this guy oscar what was his name oscar anderson the guy who, who sculpts all these things like there's and we have photos and film of them actually building the dam and we have a few weird little pictures of mount rushmore and that's about it there, there there's mysteries with the two but i think they're different mysteries all hail thor and thor's day there you go uh let's see people are voting for uh lisa good excellent what's going on jake i gotta catch up with you at some point see how things are going on the on the literary trail there's my man maurice 100 he's a joker he's a smoker he's a midnight toker some people call him maurice by the way steve miller is not yacht rock uh let's see painfully what's happening great orville there's another dam there's the orville dam as well right you had me at ambrosia great harmonies with ambrosia julie sunshine the big cat lady she's here today triple three i'm a chicken i love yacht rock see what i mean julie sunshine this chick does not dig yacht rock you're a little bit different julie it's okay Anna Sophia, she's here. Good to see you. Welcome back. Not so much romance for me, but markers for so many memories. Great and not so great. That's what music will do. It will anchor memories. For sure. Uh, let's see. Carlos Santana vaxxed. Had to cancel... Probably. Yep. What is a nightfly? It is a uh, Donald Fagan record. How about Southern Cross CSN? Maybe. Maybe. I'd have to listen to it. I don't like Crowd Stills Nash or Young. Fleetwood Mac with Bob Welch. Now, this is, Robin, you bring up a really good point. I think there could be some potential with uh, Fleetwood Mac with Bob Welch. But here's the but. I put one on my deep yacht list, which you can find over on YouTube, and I took it off. And it was um, Silver Heels. There's actually a subgenre called Dark Yacht. And I think some of that Fleetwood Mac, like hypnotized, is Dark Yacht. Just saying. I'm a big fan of that period, by the way. I love, very underrated, the Bob Welch era of Fleetwood Mac. The guitar solos on future games are just otherworldly. Uh, Nightfly is a late night radio announcer. Oh, there you go. Wendy backfill in there. Uh, Sony says, and seriously, that music would not hold much weight on a yacht. I could get better feels in many other places, in my opinion. Yacht ruins it in some instances. Uh, let's see, $25 gets you 50 votes. Wow. 
Kelly B says, sounds like the first caddy ever. I love that car. I loved it. It was a Coupe de Ville. It was white, red leather seats, first air conditioning, eight-track quadraphonic fucking sound system. That's how, that is how you roll. Uh, so it's absolutely door classical, grew up on it. Jack Johnson is Hawaiian. So I went back into this group called Calapana. And they were like the Hawaiian version of Pablo Cruz. And I went through their catalog. And I'm trying, are these guys yacht? They're kind of on the verge of yacht. So, um, Tom, you might be onto something. Hawaiian yacht. So you could have Jack Johnson, Cecilia, and Capono, and uh, Calapana. But that would be a small yacht. That would be one of those little outriggers that they paddle from Hawaii to Samoa. It'd be like um, outrigger, outrigger rock, right? I think so. Fall coming in. What's going on, brother? Fall. Good to see you from a muggy England. Dot rock. Sorry, not my favorite flavor. Kelly, your your uh, musical tastes are still. To me, a little obtuse. I'm not sure. I'm not sure what you're about, but that's okay. I don't need to know. She says, "I will say I do like some of it, though. I could turn you on to some yacht rock. Um, that would be you would like, because I have found hidden, hidden classics, deep fucking gems." in the Yacht Rock world. Here, I'll even show you my list. I promise we'll talk about Hoover Dam. Let's see. Playlists. Where's my playlists? Deep Yacht. Okay, here we go. So this is my playlist if you want to get your yacht on. So some of this I had to uh, I had to abide by the classics. You know, you, you have a list. There are certain tracks. Like you got to have Summer Breeze, Seals and Croft right there, right? You got to have the Rob, Robbie Dupree steal away. We just play with a fool believes uh, the Doobie Brothers. I love this Starbuck track, Moonlight Feels Right. And after I heard the backstory, I love it even more. Rupert Holmes, the classic, very funny, ironic, pina colada song. More Michael McDonald. Sneaking in a version of Masquerade by the Carpenters. Beautiful track. Not quite sure it's yacht. Little Al Stewart there, You're the Cat. Al Stewart is considered yacht. Bobby Caldwell, who looks white and sings black. What You Won't Do for Love. Paul Davis is somebody that I went back and started listening to. And that guy was really good. Number one, he had a great voice and his arrangements are fantastic, especially cool night. We got a little Daryl Hall and John Oates who are definitely on the yacht. So smile. I snuck in some Chardet. I bet there's some Chardet fans out there. Cherish the day. Of course, you got Kenny Loggins going back in time to Hamilton, Joe Frank and Reynolds falling in love, looking glass brandy. Who doesn't like, uh, Brandy, you're a fine girl. Double the sequel. See, I did that right back to back right there. 
It's called, that's called programming. Sort of. Uh, bread, it don't matter to me. Generally not considered yacht, but they're in there. I had to throw Christopher Cross in, yacht, sailing. Atlanta Rhythm Section, a song growing up I actually liked. It had kind of a deep, smoky, percolating vibe, right? Pre-Michael McDonald, Doobie Brothers, Another Park, Another Sunday. Had to get some Robert Palmer in there, Give Me an Inch. Uh, of course, Jay Ferguson, there's still in. I snuck in Dolly Parton and Kenny Rogers. It's a song about getting away, right? Islands in the stream. Actually, really, I like this tune. I like the hooks. I like the arrangement. More Paul Davis, I Go Crazy. There's a little Firefall, a little America. You know, I've heard these songs so many times. But for people that are into the genre, you got to include them. Swing Out Sister, aha. What are they doing in there? Yes, somewhere in the world. Lots of yacht imagery. Beach Boys, who might be considered sort of the progenitors of Yacht Rock, California Sound, Got to Have Sail on Sailor, actually one of my favorite songs. England Dan, John Ford Coley, I'd really love to see you tonight. Michael Franks, The Lady Wants to Know. Oh, there is a little track there that you may not be familiar with. Definitely on the yacht. James Taylor, Mexico, very yachty. Got your Pablo Cruz, got your Toto. Robin Ford, whom Robin might actually appreciate because he's a guitar guy, a little yachty and a little kind of bluesy. I snuck that in there. More Jay Ferguson. Here's your Bob, Bob Welch. Now, here we go. We're starting to get into some deeper kind of yacht, right? Larson fighting band, who will be the fool tonight. Dan Fogelberg, Tim Weisberg, The Power of Gold, considered a yacht classic. That's your secret. That's my secret. Sea level. I, I would definitely call it like Southern Yacht, little Southern Yacht, more Robert Palmer, every kind of people. George Duke, the talented keyboardist who played with Frank Zappa amongst many other people. George Duke is in here. Average white band produced by David Foster, definitely on the yacht. Now, here's where I come in with some very obscure yacht stuff. Craig Runke, Give Me the Nighttime, Yacht Rock Miami. That's a, a YouTube channel. Pages. You got two pages tracks. Tell me in the sailor song pages with Richard page who would later go on to form Mr. Mr. You know, that Kyrie liaison track is after he kicks alcohol, huge hit Lee Rittenauer, the jazz guitarist with Eric tag, great band. Is it you? That's in there. Commodore Ceylon, Bill Withers, lovely day. Uh, we got Mark Jordan, Margarita songs that you probably have not heard. The Samantha Sang song caught me by surprise. It's emotion with the BGs. Again, not a song I'd listened to as a kid, revisiting it. It's a lovely song. We have Dancing in the Moonlight, King Harvest, a little pre-yacht yacht, she's gone. More Daryl Hall and John Oates. Black Cassie Legant Dan. After the Love is Gone. Airplay. Jay Graydon plays a guitar solo on uh, Peg, Steely Dan. And it all uh Chicago, wishing you were here. Now, I included this track. It's a live track. It's really cool. And it, I think it's at in 1976. I think, I think uh, Jimmy Carter got elected. And it's Chicago. Terry Kath is on guitar. And they're doing Wishing You Were Here with the Beach Boys. I had to throw that on there. It's a pretty great song. The Beach Boys doing the harmonies in the background. Fantastic. And then 
I end it with another version of Summer Breeze with uh, Al Jarreau and uh, George Benson. Okay. See, that's some deep yacht. All right, let's get into the topic of the day. Let's get off the yacht and get into the dam. So Hoover Dam, we talked a little bit about its construction. Uh, the Wikipedia page actually mentions how many people died uh, during the construction of the Hoover Dam. And what I've noticed is, especially with certain structures, like for instance, uh, football stadiums, there is invariably at least one death when they erect a new football stadium. Uh, happened with Jerry World in Dallas. I, I think there was at least one. There were, I think, two when they built uh, the stadium uh, that the 49ers play in in Santa Clara, which is the most boring piece of shit and really stupid in terms of its layout and design. Like they didn't take into account the sun. I mean, it's just ridiculous. Well, what do you expect from a family that builds shitty malls? That's the DeBardo family. Anyway, um, there are a lot of people that died here. And it is Hoover Dam was dedicated on September 30th. I have the chart. We're going to look at it. And in a lot of ways, the Hoover Dam is also the forebearer of what we would call corporations. I'll show you the Wikipedia page. It says here, since about 1900, the Black Canyon and nearby Boulder Canyon have been investigated for the potential to support a dam that control floods, provide irrigation, and produce hydroelectric power. Congress authorized the project. The winning bid to build the dam was submitted by a consortium named the Six Companies, which began construction of the dam in early 1931. So part of the WPA and going into it was the formation of corporations. Corporations did not really exist prior to that. There were trusts, there were charters, but these corporations were, the idea of a corporation is born during this time. And corporations were supposed to dissolve. You know, this is where these companies would come, they would, they would have a corporate status and it was connected to these projects like um, the Hoover Dam or the Cooley Dam or the, you know, whatever they were doing, these massive bridges, you know, during the WPA. And that the idea was that they were supposed to get these breaks from the government because they were essentially carrying out government work. And then after the job was finished, they were supposed to dissolve. But did that happen? No. So the six companies, you'll see who they are. We'll come back here in a second. They're pretty significant companies. So the six companies are Kaiser, Bechtel, Huge, Morrison, Knudsen. Uh, JF Shea Company. So uh, you had Kaiser Bechtel with 30%, Utah Construction. So this is kind of where we begin to see the formation of the idea of a corporation and kind of this mega merger. They also did, I guess, the Grand Coulee Dam and Perker Dam as well. 
they had the damn experience. Okay. So let's go into the deaths. Because there were, there were a number of deaths there. Of course, they had some issues with the unions. The Wobblies wanted to get in. The socialist malcontents. Construction deaths. So there were 112 construction deaths associated with the dam. The first was Bureau of Reclamation employee Harold Connolly, who died on May 15, 1921, after falling from a barge while surveying the Colorado River. Surveyor John Gregory, um, J.G. Tierney, who drowned on December 20th, 1922 in a flash flood while looking for an ideal spot for the dam was the second person. So even before the dam is built, they got two people who die by water. The official list final death occurred on December 20th, 1935 when Patrick Tierney, now this is weird, an electrician's helper and the son of J.G. Tierney fell from one of the two Arizona side intake towers. So you have two, like a father and a son. Remember that. That's an important detail who also died. Uh, included in the fatality list are three workers who took their own lives on the site. So you have three suicides, one in 1932 and two in 1933. Of the 112 fatalities, 91 were six companies' employees. Three were Bureau of Reclamation employees. And one was a visitor to the site. The remainder uh, were employees of various contractors, not part of six companies. 96, so there's a lot of nine, six, and three here. And nine, six, and three is a number that shows up a lot. Shows up in Tesla, shows up in baseball, right? So 96, so we have nine and six. We have three... We have six here, right? Nine, three, six. We have we have the father and the son who are the twin. Keep in mind, that is a twin relationship. It's not like brothers, but you can you can look at a father and son and see them as kind of a twin formation. 96 of the deaths occurred uh, during the construction site, not included in the number of fatalities that were recorded as pneumonia. Workers alleged that the diagnosis, diagnosis was a cover for death from carbon monoxide poisoning brought on by the use of gasoline-fueled vehicles in the diversion tunnels. So they were using, and this is before a time where they had like a lot of emission control. So they're running a lot of these vehicles through these tunnels some of which are not vented and they're not complete. The boring process of the tunnels is there for everybody to see. And so you have all this carbon monoxide building up inside of these tunnels and they were canaries in a coal mine. They were dropping like flies. The site's diversion tunnels frequently reached 140 degrees Fahrenheit, enveloped in thick plumes of vehicle exhaust gas, a total of 42 workers, interesting number. Uh, again, we get six were recorded as having died from pneumonia and were not included in the above total 
None were listed as having died from carbon monoxide poisoning. No deaths of non-workers from pneumonia recorded in Boulder City during the construction period. So Boulder City, which is still around, they didn't have any pneumonia deaths. So take it for what you believe it is. Now, this is a monument to this is now this is behind the, the guardians that were constructed there. So this is kind of interesting, right? You, you're going to see uh, a fair amount of Masonic symbolism. You're beginning to see it here at the top. You're beginning to kind of see it here. You can begin to kind of see the, uh, the compass, right? And then the arms themselves, you know, actually look like the square, so here comes the compass, and then the arms are like the square. You, so it, this in and of itself is a formation of a Freemasonic design. You can see it. And then here you have uh, the waters, right? You have the waters, and then you have this figure who is rising out of the waters. So there's this idea of resurrection, right through through death and there's there's some interesting parallels here with Egypt with um the dam itself right but you can see it right you can see just bring down just draw a line here you can see draw a line here and there's your compass and then here's your square and out of the waters this person he's not dying He's being resurrected. You know, maybe this is in uh, their memory that these people who died are resurrected. So we're going to get into the architectural style here. There are some people that are um, responsible for the Art Deco feel, which is, you can kind of see the bas relief here, Right. This is in the uh, Nevada elevator side. Uh, this has an incredibly Mayan feel to it. It's like the the wheel of life, the wheel of existence. There, it, to me, I mean, it's in some ways it's a slight precursor to the Georgia Guidestones. Slight. True research, uh, authentic decorative motifs from Indian sand paintings, textiles, baskets, and ceramics. So you get some of that. But the real, the real contributor to the esoteric or occult value is Oscar Hansen, Oscar J.W. Hansen. Designed many of the sculptures on and around the dam. His works include the monument, of the dedication plaza, a plaque to memorialize the workers killed in the bas relief. So you can see the Freemasonic symbolism there. You can also see it here, right? Here we have, again, down here, I'll pop that up. Here you have the compass and a modified version of the square. This is actually a, a galactic or cosmic year that... Hansen encoded into the floor 
of the top of the Hoover Dam. We're going to get into this a little bit, right? And there's a specific connection right there that we're going to get into. But this is definitely on the Freemasonic side of things. It is not like a typical square, but you can see it, right? You can you can begin to see the, the same kind of foundation of the formation. So there's this is what they call the star map. And I'll read you this paragraph. Surrounding the base of the monument is a terrazzo. Terrazzo floor embedded with a star map. The map depicts the northern hemisphere sky at the moment of President Roosevelt's dedication of the dam. We're going to look at the chart, which I have. Um, this is intended to help future astronomers, if necessary, calculate the exact date of dedication. The 30-foot high bronze figures dubbed winged figures of the Republic were both formed in a continuous pour. To put such large bronze bronzes into place without marring the highly polished bronze surface, they were placed on ice. Again, that's frozen water and guided into position as the ice melted. Now, it plays a role, right? It keeps it from scuffing, but think of the, just think of the symbolism of these giant cubes of ice that melt and literally descend from the heavens, right? What do you get out of that? Well, you probably get a mud flood. And I'm not saying that that's what their intent or goal was, but clearly symbolism is in inherent and intact in even some of the most mundane or functional acts. Hansen's bas-relief on the Nevada elevator tower depicts the benefits of the dam, flood control, uh, navigation, irrigation, water storage, and power. The bas-relief on the Arizona elevator depicts, in his words, visages of those Indian tribes who have inhabited mountains and plains from ages distant. So it's pretty clear that Oscar Hansen has a fairly deep working knowledge of things that are esoteric. He's actually born in Norway. Uh, he served in the United States Army. And he had an artist studio near Ashcroft outside of Charlottesville, Virginia. And these are some of his selected works. This is in the main lobby of the Rand Tower in Minneapolis. And he, he's, I guess, most well-known, right? For these things. He looks like he wrote something beyond the cherubim and sculptures at Hoover Dam. I'm going to have to check those out. He, he passed away in 1971. He was born in uh, 1892, and he's, he's a Pisces. If you're going to hire somebody with a deep esoteric knowledge and somebody connected to water and dams, hell, I'd hire a Pisces. Why not? I'm going to track down his books. Okay. So where do I go from here? I want to play you um, a clip. And then I'm going to bring something else into this discussion. That, And I've looked at a, a number of 
like presentations because there are a number of people who have looked into the occult and esoteric symbolism of the Hoover Dam. So if you're interested, you know, let your fingers do the walking. And there are people that can backfill some of the things that I'm not bringing up here or talking about. But I'm going to play you a clip from the movie San Andreas, which will give you an idea of what it's like to watch the Hoover Dam break. What do they call this? They call it predictive programming. So let me cue this up here. This is the third mini quick since we've been here. The magnetic pulse rate has increased before each one of them. We got a pattern, my friend. That was a 2.2. Our model's predictive. Oh, we got it right, man. Finally. Yeah, we sure did. <laughs> Uh-oh. Shit. What's wrong? The pulse rates are spiking again. They're huge. Are you serious? I'm about to have a major quake. It jumped to a 7.1! Jesus, Kim, get the hell out of there! Right there, right there. Hold on. Look at the symbolism right here, right? He's got a stake right through his what? His soul. And what is that symbolic of? That's Pisces. Pisces rules the souls. And the dam is about to break. Why is this important? Because I'll show you with the chart. 
this is symbolizing the end of the Piscean age. So if you're listening, what the, this character, by the way, I thought this guy was Jackie Chan at first. I was watching it late at night. And then I realized it wasn't Jackie Chan. And I thought to myself, if it was Jackie Chan, this wouldn't have happened to him. Jackie Chan would have been successful. So this is like putting a spike. This is put stat. This is piercing the soul, right? And this is Pisces. And so the dam breaking is symbolic of the waters of Aquarius, right? The water bearer who is essentially emptying the contents of the cistern to begin the Aquarian age. This is an important part of this movie. And it is, this is like, they could have done anything, right? They could have put the spike through his ankle. Well, that'd be Aquarian, but it's through the soul. And guess what? You ain't gonna make it. released okay so that happens right at the beginning of the movie now the rest of the movie has to do with Dwayne the Rock Johnson and he is going, so he's the new Bruce Willis. He and his wife are having a hard time. They're going through a divorce. He has a daughter named Blake. Blake is synonymous with William Blake. And William Blake being a, you know, genius Gnostic. And the person who really through his art and his poetry promulgates the idea of demiurges who basically rule over this domain. Blake's boyfriend is Daniel. And of course we have the book of Daniel. So there are two characters that are built into the movie um, that have some interesting symbolic significance as well. Now, let me show you this. Coit Tower in San Francisco plays a significant role in the movie. You, so I have this lined up here. If you're listening, it's a Polaroid of Dwayne The Rock Johnson, who's the main character, the hero of San Andreas, uh, with his wife and, I guess, daughter, friend, two friends, whatever. And right behind him is Coit Tower, which is another esoteric and occult symbol that is all up and down the west, western part of the United States, California, et cetera. So what they're supposed to meet here. Like when all everything goes to hell in a handbasket, they're supposed to meet in Coit Tower. 
Koi Tower represents the masculine principle. So Koi Tower is it, it is supposedly a um, sculpture. You can actually go up in it that is dedicated to the firemen of San Francisco who helped douse the, the, the flames of the 1906 earthquake. So this is actually the male principle. This is phallic, right? So Coit Tower and the Hoover Dam are connected with one another. And by the time they get to Coit Tower, it's on fire, right? So you have fire and water just in this movie alone. Fire and water, and it's like the the conception is complete. It's it's complete, and so what what you you're seeing in this movie San Andreas, and what you see with the structure of the tower itself, I'm sorry, um, the dam itself. When you see the legs, right, is that when that dam wall bursts, it's like it's giving birth. And it's giving birth to the Aquarian age. I'm not going to get too much more into this movie, but uh, what happens is that the West Coast is pretty much destroyed. And the bay really starts at like San Jose. Like everything else is submerged. All this shit happens. Uh, the Golden Gate Bridge is torn asunder. And there's a ragged American flag hanging from uh, the suspension, one of the suspensions of the Golden Gate Bridge, which is the symbol of like the new America or the rebirth that happens on the backside of this tectonic disaster. And again, there's a reason why they brought Dwayne The Rock Johnson into this movie for a number, number of reasons. Um, So that's that's San Andreas. That's the hidden in plain sight stuff. They're showing you what they're going to do. And the whole Coit Tower thing is significant, right? It's the masculine and the feminine. So let's take a look at these winged structures and what they're supposedly about. Here's one up close. Now they're the winged guardians and there, there are two of them. What are they about? Remember there's two. Two always plays a key role, like the twin towers, you have the father and the son that both die, the tyrannies. So if we take a look at the, uh, the axial clock, we might get a bit of a sense here as to what's going on. Yeah, and you can see like also this is a better view as well. Let me show you this. 
it's not just the the round portion of the circle and the square, right? It's also this. You can see the Freemasonic design here, right? Here's the square. So you have the wings of the American Eagle and all the symbolism that goes along with that. That was supposed to be a Phoenix, by the way, initially. And then here comes the compass and then there's the square going through the compass. So this is totally Freemasonic. And this is the um, axial procession right here. Now keep in mind that we have these winged guardians and we're gonna, we're gonna try to get a sense as to what they're about. So I'm gonna go into an article, um, a pretty good article by the Long Now Institute. And the Long Now Institute is something that was created by Stuart Brand, who is um, was one of the Merry Pranksters. And let's see what we got here. Uh, right there. Okay. And he decided that he wanted to build a clock that would essentially capture uh, the procession of the equinoxes. You can see again, the Freemasonic symbolism right here, right there, right? So we're not gonna get into this with too much um, detail because there's a lot of detail there. You can see that the we have constellations here and it all is pointed towards the North Star. Now, this is something that uh, Christopher Knowles brought up when we had our, our talk not last Friday, but the Friday before last. By the way, I highly recommend that show. That's a great show that we did together. So uh, what this author, who is part of the Long Now, is saying, there's a 26,000-year astronomical monument hidden in plain sight. So here we have the Winged Guardians, which we talked about. And this is the beginning of the, the Plaza's terrazzo floor is actually a celestial map that marks the time of the dam's creation based on the 25,772 year axial procession of the earth. So this is the creation of this thing. This guy, this is, um, this is Oscar. Right. That's Oscar. Now, th they actually are able to like encode and locate where, where they are on this celestial map. Okay. So here's Polaris, right? This is the North Ecliptic Pole. This is exactly what, um, what Christopher was talking about. And you can begin to see here, right, this 26,000 ecliptic cycle that the Earth is connected to in terms of this galactic year or axial year. So what he does, which I think is interesting, is he connects it to Thuban, right? What is Thuban? Thuban, at one point in time, 
was considered to be the pole star. Here we have an upside down rendering of a pyramid, which again is the whole idea. And this is where I believe they were. This pyramid marks where they were on the day that this was created. Right there. And then here's Thuban. So Thuban is the former pole star. So what's happening here is the pole star is in there, but he's actually making a reference point to Thuban. And where is Thuban? Thuban is in Alpha Draconis. So this gets into the Earth's axis, maintains a tilt, 22 to 24 degrees. And it talks about how there's wobbles and how the pole star keeps changing. How to see Thuban. Thuban is part of the constellation Draco, the dragon. Although it's not a super bright star, it is bright enough to see with relative ease on a dark night. So Thuban is, plays a pretty significant role, right? Because they're aligning first to Thuban and then to the pole star. So this is the original pole star. So what does this have to do with these characters here? These are the watchers. These are the watchers and they, I believe represent uh, the Nephilim quote unquote Anunnaki. And one of the things that this whole thing is about, right? Is to summon their return to summon the return of the original gods. That's, you'll see this embedded in a lot of the symbolism that, that is connected to this story. And Christopher Knowles talks about it with 9-11 and where the pole star. Now, what's interesting about 9-11 and the pole star is that I believe, if I'm not mistaken, it is conjunct the moon on 9-11-2001. So the moon and the pole star were in alignment um, on that day. So, so this is essentially um, a ritual enshrinement to the watchers, a ritual enshrinement to the descent of the gods that came from the heavens and were involved in theoretically the creation of this world. And again, theoretically, this species of humanity. And that this whole thing with the dam at some point, which is the beginning of the Aquarian age, would be also the descent of those gods or the descent of those entities into the world the physical descent of their presence back into the world. It's like a birthing moment. So I did a chart for that day, which is pretty interesting. There's a time, there's a day, there's a year, right? Here we go, Hoover. If you're uh, listening, I just pulled up a, an astrological chart. 
And it's uh, September 30th, 1935 at 8.56 p.m. So there's some interesting things that are related to this chart. First of all, look at the rising sign. It's Gemini. How many times have I fucking talked about Gemini as it relates to the symbolism of this world? Brothers, twins, we have the twin towers. We have Chiron here at 16 degrees, Gemini. The, you know, the wounded healer, the wounded twins. We have the two, we have the father and the son who are killed during the construction uh, of the dam. Here's Polaris at 27, Gemini, right, right there in the first house. So Polaris is a fixed star. And I believe it, at that degree, it was conjunct the Gemini moon on 9-11. So what else is interesting about this chart is the ascendant. I'm sorry, the midheaven. The midheaven is what? Aquarius, the water bearer, right on the midheaven at 25 degrees. And look what we have here, Saturn. So Saturn currently 23 retrograde. And we just had an explosion, a fire breakout, and I believe Saturn might have been at late, late 23 or 24 Aquarius. So what does this mean when Saturn goes direct and hits the midheaven? Well, the Hoover Dam will go through its Saturn return. Now, it's happened before. It happened in uh, 1993. And then 30 years prior to that, which would be 1963, right? 1995, 1995, 1965, 1935, 30, 30 year cycles. But this time it's different, right? This is a different time because this will be the third conjunction. Well, technically speaking, yeah, it'll be, it'll be the third conjunction. The first one would have been in 65 and then 95 and then now. So, that's a significant number. This is the third passage of Saturn. And then you have three, 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 that would add up to six and then uh, nine. And nine would be the end of something, right? So I think this is significant. And even the connection between Saturn and the sun and then Uranus and the sun, which forms a yod right, at seven Libra. So when you have planets that hit um, one of the focal, this is the focal point of the odd, but when you have a planet hit uh, one of the sextile points that leads into the focal point, there can be disruption. And what did we see? We, we saw Mars, transiting Mars, basically come in and hit the natal Uranus of the Hoover Dam a few days ago. So you're going to get, right, some energy with that from, from an astrological standpoint. And maybe they're looking at, hey, look, you know, let's get a little Marsy here in this thing. Now let's blow some fuses. Let's see if we can make something happen. Let's see if we can have a bit of a test run here. So we're going to have the Mars-Uranus true node conjunction that starts on the first week of August. Is that going to have an impact 
on the Hoover Dam. It's all happening in the 12th house of the Hoover Dam. It's quite possible. And you can just see here, right, with Aquarius at the top, the water bearer, and then here's the water. Here's the water. And through the yod, it just descends, right, descends into the sun, just like that. Um, and then we have a T-square, Mars and Sag, of course, Neptune and Virgo, which, by the way, is in the similar sign that shows up in the U.S. chart with Neptune and Virgo. I don't think there's any uh, coincidence around that. And then you have the south node here in Cancer, which is in kind of a wide conjunction with Sirius, another fairly significant star. But it's in, you know, it, it's in a place of vulnerability, right? What's really going on is the, the true node in Capricorn in the eighth house, the hidden forces in the eighth house. This is the hierarchy, right? In Capricorn in the eighth house. So this is an interesting chart. And even with the south node here coming through, let's see, where's the true node now? Uh, let's see, transiting 20, 20 Scorpio. So again, you know, it's right here, 20 Scorpio. That south node was conjunct Jupiter closer when that transformer blew. And it still is going to get closer yet to this moon. And what does this do? What does Jupiter do to the moon? It expands everything, right? What is It expands water. And here, you know, Scorpio could be considered destructive water. And then once again, we have an inconjunct with the moon and Chiron, right? On the ascendant in Gemini, we have the twins. We have the pole star, which is a 27 Gemini. And the inconjunct is the, you know, the hidden force or um, the hidden alignment that triggers something. So this is interesting. I think particularly in terms of where we are now, astrologically and how everything is you know pretty much set up up here with the hoover dam you know with that 20 25th degree 55 we could call it 26 degrees of aquarius and then saturn you know lurking right off the you know the roof of the chart up here and then the third saturn return coming with the hoover i would not be surprised if something major happens to the hoover dam when would it happen sometime between 25 Aquarius and four Pisces. Remember the symbol, right? The symbol of the guy in the movie with the spike through his soul. That represents the end of the Piscean age. When the dam breaks and the waters are released, that, be, that, sim, that is the symbolism of the beginning of the Aquarian age. And when the Aquarian age, again, this is more on the esoteric occult side, when the Aquarian age is initiated, when it is birthed, it is the end of the age of the Abrahamic gods, 
right? It is the end of the age of, you know, Jesus, Sananda, Yeshua, Emmanuel, and it is the birth of the old gods, the gods that preceded the Piscean age that we've been in for however long. You can chop it up, 138-year cycles, whatever, right? We're in it. And all the symbolism has, in the 20th century and even prior to the 20th century, referenced that. When, when you look at um, T.S. Eliot's Wasteland, it is based on the Fisher King, in the fall of the Fisher King. And the 20th century allegory where the Fisher King is wounded and modern life becomes an allegory for the spiritual wasteland that is the wound of the Fisher King, which is Chiron, by the way. So this is an interesting chart, and I'm probably going to talk about it on Sunday night. So some of you may get a replay of this. And I do want to bring Christopher on the Sunday night show. I think I want to get it closer to 9-11 so we can have a really interesting and he's all over this. He's seen this a lot. This um, uh, alignment with Polaris and the astrotheology connected to Polaris, and Polaris being the the pole star that where everything descends from, right? And it's the return of the Watchers. It's the return of the old gods. Who knows? Maybe that's also Dwayne the Rock Johnson. Maybe he's symbolic of that in some ways. So I've got this weird thing that happens with my computer during the show. Even though I'm plugged in, the power gets drained. It must mean I need a new battery or something. The other thing, too, with this chart is that there's only one planet with fire, and that is Mars. And it's in... Sagittarius. And what's interesting is that it is actually the highest planet in this chart. Because once you get past the midheaven, right, these planets are descending, right? They're descending. Once you get past the fourth house or the IC, planets are ascending. So Mars is a dominant planet here and it's destructive, right? The square with Neptune you know, could represent the destruction of the waters and all in the fourth house, all fourth house stuff. Interesting chart, for sure. I'm curious as to what that 26 degree of Aquarius is with uh, the Sabian symbols. Let me see if I can find it. By the way, you can thank me later for having what a fool believes in your head for the rest of the day. Okay, what is 26 Aquarius? Uh, in the saving symbols, it's a garage man testing a car's battery with a hydrometer, which has to do with water and energy. Interesting. Skill in applying knowledge of natural laws to the solution of everyday problems resulting from life in our technological society. That's an interesting symbol. Uh, it says here, here, was, here we see a man using his analytical mind 
check upon the operation of the machines whose inventive genius produced Hoover Dam. Uh, this simple commonplace operation is used here as an indication of how deeply technology involves us in small matters, yet matters which in some circumstances could make the difference between life and death, a mechanical failure in a car on a crowded freeway. The need for management, therefore, is seen to affect every detail of our individual lives. This applies well to the complexities of interpersonal, social, or political relationships. Interesting. So there is some resonance here with that, that, that degree and that symbol. And what is uh, Libra, gonna, uh, Pisces? What is Pisces 5? Pisces 5 and Pisces. And by the way, that is Vesta conjunct Pisces, and they're both retrograde. It's Pisces 5. Uh, Pisces 5 is a church bazaar, B-A-Z-A-A-R. The value of giving a spiritual or transcendent sanction to even the most commonplace interchanges between social persons and individual minds. When you look at that symbol, though, it's actually going, uh, or that degree is going retrograde, and it goes to heavy car traffic on a narrow isthmus linking two seashore resorts. That's kind of interesting because that narrow isthmus is like the bridge that links Arizona and Nevada. That's an interesting symbol for sure. Okay, we're almost out of time today. All right, thanks for being here. Um, I hope you've enjoyed this rather brief presentation. The other thing I wanted to bring up really quickly, and this is kind of bizarre, and I'm not sure how much time I have left here, but let me just show this to you. This is part of the symbolism, right? When you fuck with the $50 bill, right? What do you have here? It's the Hoover Dam. Look at this. And then they went into this rainbow money. So when you put it together with the rainbow money, what do you have? You have the water. You have the water seeping out of the dam. Is that interesting? A little bit more Hoover Dam symbolism there. Something's up. They're going to blow that sucker at some point. That's my sense. And with this kind of ritual draining of Lake Mead, which is connected to the Hoover Dam, they may just say, we're done. We're done. And when that happens, I think it's a huge event. It's not just, um, you know, lights out LA or whatever. Like it signals the beginning of the return of their gods. And maybe even they believe that they're the gods. And it's like, this is our time now. All right, I'm out of here. Use your head in order to discern what's really hard to say what's possible. Join me tomorrow over on YouTube with the Friday Firecast and Mark Malone. We're going to get in a little agenda 2030. A lot of updates on that. Take care. See you. Bye for now. Have a great day. Stay yachty.